Hello and welcome to the Global Insight from Control Risks, the Global Specialist Risk Consultancy. I'm your host, Claudine Fry, and this is the podcast where we try to explain what's going on in the world. My usual co-host, Charles Hecker, is off this week, taking some well-deserved leave. But he'll be back to co-host in a fortnight. Recently, particularly in the past year, the global conversation around climate change and green energy has taken on a new urgency. And it really does seem to be more than just talk. Governments worldwide are developing policies aimed at decarbonisation with a strong emphasis on hydrogen, which has been touted as a potential alternative to fossil fuels for almost half a century, but has only recently begun attracting concerted attention. Is this hydrogen and green energy's watershed moment? To discuss that with me today, I'm delighted to welcome Oksana Antonenko, a director in our political risk consultancy for Europe. Hi, Oksana. Hi, Claudine. Thank you very much for having me. And we also have Joe Smith, who's a senior analyst responsible for providing analysis on international business issues and has also been a regular panelist in these podcasts. So also to you, Joe, welcome back. Hi, Claudine. And finally, I'm delighted to welcome Jakob Larsen, who is a colleague of ours, one of our team based in Copenhagen, who works with clients on energy issues. Hello, Jakob. Hi, Claudine. Happy to be part of this. Oksana, Joe and Jakob, you have all recently co-authored a super piece on thecontrolrisks.com about hydrogen. It's really a recommended read for anyone like me who perhaps doesn't know very much about hydrogen at the moment. I must say it's also one of those pieces that really made me realise how much I don't know, but really ought to know. And it's a great introduction to the role that hydrogen is going to play in the transition that we're going to see accelerating over the next few months and years as we move away from fossil fuels and embrace different forms of energy. So perhaps let's start by setting the scene and talking about how this moment is significant. Oksana, what what is it with respect to developments in the renewable space at the moment that makes this a watershed moment? Well, I think 2020 was to a large extent about renewable energy. Of course, we all think that it was mostly about COVID and about, you know, crisis. But there was one sector last year, which is renewable energy, which has not shrunk or declined, but actually has grown, has demonstrated remarkable resilience. And in this space in particular, the renewables for electricity or electricity generated from renewables has really charged ahead. And in Europe, we've had for the first time more electricity produced from renewable sources, from wind and solar than from fossil fuels. So it is a real watershed moment in many ways based on the climate change agenda, which has been now embraced by the population all across the world, we are really seeing now public demand increasingly for renewable energy, both you know, for their day-to-day use or in electricity, in heating, but also increasingly in transport, including also in aviation. So that really places a lot of question marks of how can the renewable energy sector provide enough electricity and enough input, you know, to be able to reduce fossil fuels all across the board. And this is really where hydrogen comes in. It's 
maybe important to, to start by saying that hydrogen is already a well-established industry across the globe. But of course, green hydrogen is, is something quite different. Just to provide a bit of context, hydrogen is mainly used to produce ammonia for fertilizers. It is also used for a range of other things like rocket fuel because it's so potent. And what's great about hydrogen from a climate standpoint is that it produces no CO2, no emissions when it's burned off. The problem is that the way we're producing hydrogen so far is very polluting. So that's what's making it so controversial, you could say. And some of you might remember that there was a bit of a a hype over hydrogen cars some years ago. It didn't really take off. And I think we can attribute that to the same reason and and also partly because of concerns over safety and, and energy efficiency compared to other ways of storing energy. There are ways to produce hydrogen and ammonia in less polluting ways. And above all, a completely emissions-free way of producing hydrogen is by using renewable energy and combining that with what we call electrolysis, which is essentially a way of separating the hydrogen from water molecules. And that's basically what we refer to as as green hydrogen. And you can also create green ammonia in a similar way. So what's new about all of this is that the cost of renewable energy as well as the cost of electrolysis has come down significantly over the past two decades to the point where it's really starting to make sense to scale up and potentially use hydrogen or ammonia as fuel for heavy transport and shipping, as fertilizers for agriculture, as we're already doing, to generate heat for steel manufacturing and many other applications. And at the same time, we now have so much renewable electricity and plans to expand renewable electricity further that we really need a solution to be able to store that power somewhere or somehow. We can't just switch over a steel plant when the sun isn't shining or accept blackouts in an ever more electricity-dependent modern economy. Hydrogen and ammonia potentially offer solutions to this as well. It sounds like a game-changing but complex option and certainly one that we are, as your piece notes, seeing a lot of governments and businesses now adopt new strategies focused on. We've seen some really ambitious targets being set by a whole host of governments and commercial organisations recently. Perhaps it's a good moment to reflect on some of the approaches that we're seeing being developed with respect to hydrogen specifically. Joe, talk us through what you're tracking, particularly in the EU. One thing that's important to highlight around strategies at the national level towards this pivot to hydrogen is the fact that hydrogen is really seen as being key to sort of deep decarbonisation. As Jakob mentioned, it's seen as a way of storing energy produced by renewable sources, but also a way of meeting the energy needs of those sectors where electrification isn't quite so easy. And it's no coincidence that we've seen as the discussion around deep decarbonisation has expanded, that hydrogen's potential is really being leveraged at the same time. So it's a lot of those same countries that have come forward with these net zero greenhouse gas emissions pledges over the last couple of years that have also come forward with national hydrogen strategies. It's so interesting to see, Joe, these national strategies being adopted by countries like Germany and and, and Norway and and, and other European countries. And of course, it's also a a key part of the European Green Deal to promote investments in in hydrogen and to look at the regulatory frameworks and so forth. So so really an exciting time for the hydrogen sector and especially for, for green hydrogen. 
Exactly. Yeah. And as, as you mentioned, Europe really is at the epicenter of this. We've seen most hydrogen projects within Europe, but also the, the national hydrogen strategies really coming from that region as well. The EU as a whole has, an, has its own hydrogen strategy, but also countries like France, the Netherlands, Germany, Portugal, and, and a few others. Also worth highlighting that Europe isn't obviously the only region pursuing these hydrogen strategies. We've seen some from the Asia Pacific region with the likes of Japan, South Korea, Australia, and a few other countries like Chile and Canada as well. And I think over the course of the next year, especially as we continue to see these pledges come forward for sort of deep decarbonization and net zero emissions, we'll see more countries add themselves to this list as well. I think it is also important to say that the hydrogen industry is a very attractive industry from the private sector perspective. Different estimates, you know, put different figures to it, but I think around 24 5% of the global energy needs are likely to be met by hydrogen by 2050. So it is really almost, you know, 700 billion US dollars annually industry, which could be very attractive for both hydrogen producers, but also for those companies that are able to take lead in transitioning towards hydrogen and being able to produce, for example, steel or, or some other products that require the hydrogen input. But it is, of course, also very tricky for many private companies that are facing this environment in which if they start incurring higher costs as a result of using green hydrogen, which is still more costly than, of course, coal or fossil fuels more broadly, they feel that they need to be compensated through the various systems, for example, of carbon pricing or cross-border taxation, something which could uh, stimulate or encourage use of green hydrogen rather than leaving it completely to the private sector. Yeah, I think that's that's a really good point. And I guess as well, that's part of what these national hydrogen strategies are aimed at doing. It's providing those long-term signals for the private sector to give them an indication of where policy and the regulatory landscape is heading so that they know that they can make these investments without necessarily incurring the same degree of risk that there would be otherwise, especially given that the, the market is still, for the product anyway, is still nascent or it's still growing. I guess the I guess the trouble is that we are still at, at, at such an early stage of scaling up green hydrogen and ammonia. It really does mainly remain brown or, or grey versions that are that are currently being produced, which creates a lot of emissions. And for that reason, climate activists are concerned. There are also uncertainties around which decarbonisation technologies are best for which sectors, or whether green hydrogen or green ammonia may be quite as simple to implement after all. So I guess you could say that. That all in all, green hydrogen and ammonia are are potentially quite controversial still, and and, and do come with a range of, of uncertainties and risks, which of course is what we what we're talking about here. I get the sense that this is going to be geopolitically pretty interesting in terms of altering the dynamic between different countries, those that are able to produce versus supply, those that are going to be changing their the energy mix and the consequences for states that are used to supplying fossil fuel and will maybe less have less leverage as a result as other forms of energy come online and so on. Let's focus a little bit now on the implications of all this from a risk perspective. And first of all, perhaps geopolitically and how we see hydrogen potentially altering geopolitical risk. Oksana, any, any thoughts on that one? Yes, absolutely, Claudine, you're totally right. I think geopolitics of hydrogen now is one field where there's a lot going on, a lot of opinions, a lot of risks, and a lot of interesting uncertainties that we are facing. 
On one hand, I think it is very clear that mainstreaming of hydrogen is going to reshape the global energy sector quite substantially, both from the point of view of demand for oil, but also, of course, demand for natural gas and potentially even LNG. Because if we are assuming that by 2050, at least in the most developed economies in Europe and United States, North America more broadly, we are going to see transition to green hydrogen, then quite a lot of countries that have been investing a lot of resources recently for scaling up the production of LNG or natural gas, assuming that it will be the main vehicle for energy transition. Perhaps they're going to find themselves with a lot of resources on their hands, but not being able to sell as much as they were expecting for. And, and of course, some of the energy producers, like countries like Iraq, like Algeria, like Nigeria, or even countries like Russia, that are actually have made quite a limited progress in diversifying of their economies away from dependency on fossil fuels, they potentially can face a much more substantial economic impacts, you know, from hydrogen transition, unless, of course, they take steps to diversify early. But in addition to that kind of pretty basic tensions between producers and consumers of energy, we're also, of course, seeing other geopolitical tensions. For example, quite a number of countries that at the moment are importers of energy, likely to become an exporters of energy. And we're seeing that, of course, within the European Union as well, countries like Germany, like Poland, like Ukraine, that are now investing a lot of resources in renewable energy, will be able to produce green hydrogen and as a result of that compete with traditional fossil fuel producers, so creating a completely new geopolitical picture around energy. And finally, of course, the issue of transport routes, you know, how the energy is going to travel from one country to another. Of course, if we will be living in this world of, uh, you know, hydrogen economies, you know, globally, most countries are going to be producing their own electricity, their own energy. And they will only depend on cross-border trade to supplement their domestic production. But of course, some cross-border trade will take place. Most importantly, I think maritime cross-border trade. And that will reshape the routes for transport of energy. And here, the big question mark, whether the existing infrastructure, for example, existing gas pipeline networks connecting Russia with Europe or connecting North Africa with Europe or similarly North America, will be able to be repurposed to export hydrogen. And this is what natural gas producers really want to see. But at the same time, the consumer countries are quite reluctant to agree to that because actually for them, hydrogen is a very important step for their energy security. And they do not want to any longer be dependent on a particular supplier just by the mere fact that there are existing pipelines in place. So I think a lot of geopolitical issues to resolve, and and I certainly foresee that there will be a lot of tensions and conflicts uh, in, in the next 20 years around this geopolitics of hydrogen. A whole new set of winners and losers, it sounds like, Oksana. And it makes me think of nationalism. We're seeing a lot more of that in the way that governments are controlling the way that their inflows are managed the scrutiny of investment into particular sectors. And of course, energy is always hugely significant from a strategic perspective. What is the regulatory landscape around hydrogen at the moment? And how do we anticipate that that will evolve? What kind of risk will regulations pose to companies that are operating in, in hydrogen? I think that's a uh, a really important question, Claudine. And I would say that, that it, it's probably one of the things that People involved in the uh, green hydrogen expansion, you know, are most concerned about right now. Overall, the speed and effectiveness, and also harmonisation or alignment, at least to a degree, of 
of the policies and regulations that will enable the creation of a green hydrogen and ammonia market will be essential. And there's still quite a way to go you know, in terms of developing the regulations or adapting regulations, at least existing regulations, to, to be able to do so. We need standards for transport, storage and usage to ensure safety and quality. We need rules around pipelines to ensure access and to be able to trade hydrogen gas, for example. The EU's agency for the Corporation of Energy Regulators, ESA, has recommended that in the EU, we have a gradual and flexible rollout of an EU-wide framework to be able to accommodate the differences in adaptability of existing infrastructure, new technologies that might emerge, which sectors green hydrogen or green ammonia will grow in across different countries. That's all very well because you know it'd be helpful to have a, a gradual and flexible rollout but it's also very likely that that in itself will create uncertainties and leave a lot of power in the hands of, of national regulators. Definitely some regulatory risks to, to consider. I think one issue also here, which is very important for the regulators now to decide what they want to encourage and what is the pace of transition that they want to encourage. Because at the moment, of course, there are certain tensions, particularly in some regions, whether the green energy, the solar and wind energy, should be mostly used for electricity transitioning to a green economy, or should it be primarily eventually repurposed for the production of hydrogen? And of course, we only have certain capacity in the green renewables which probably cannot accommodate both at the moment. So many of the regulations are really looking at, you know, those fields of how does one balance different priorities, how to stimulate, you know, certain production, how to avoid this carbon leakage, as I mentioned before, that actually some steel producers, for example, who adopt more green methods or, you know, hydrogen in their heating needs actually are going to be disadvantaged and will not be able to sell their products at the market. So it is quite a lot of, you know, global issues that are important this regulatory debate as well as local ones. You know, speaking of the challenges around different kinds of, of hydrogen or, or rather the ways that hydrogen can be produced also, one of the fundamental challenges or, or requirements, you could say, is that we also really need to be able to, to prove that hydrogen has been produced with zero or low emissions. That's going to be crucial as the industry is scaled up. We saw that with renewable energy, electricity in itself, for example, the guarantees of origin that were intended to provide that kind of reassurance that, that it was actually renewable electricity and not from a coal power plant or, or somewhere else. That has actually come under, under scrutiny and criticism from climate activists also being accused of greenwashing for, for various reasons. So it's, it's very likely that we could see similar kinds of, of scrutiny or, or, or doubts given that the less clean ways of producing hydrogen are still so controversial. How is hydrogen viewed then by environmental activists? Joe, I know you do a lot of work looking at environmental groups and the role that activists play in influencing the way that companies operate in the energy sector. What are you picking up about the way that different environmental groups and other sorts of activists are viewing hydrogen and what kind of influence will they seek to have on how it's developing? I think Green hydrogen broadly is seen as seen in a positive light because of the fact that through the process of electrolysis there are no emissions produced. It is as we've been we've been discussing these other forms of hydrogen which are seen in a slightly less favourable light or a much less favourable light for some of them 
there are all these different shades. So what we've seen a lot of, or some energy companies, some oil majors move into is specifically blue hydrogen, which is produced using natural gas via a process called steam reformation. And the idea is that most of the greenhouse gases, or most of the greenhouse gas emissions from that process are then captured and stored through the carbon capture and storage process. And that's where we're going to see some of the accusations of greenwashing against companies that are moving into the hydrogen space. Uh, another issue, I guess, which is also important for activism is, is the fact that some hydrogen production requires quite a lot of water. I think in some of the countries we talked about geopolitical consequences, in some of the countries that are at the moment, you know, major fossil producers and who are now being encouraged to really diversify their economies and develop hydrogen capacities. For example, I know Saudi Arabia is now building a lot of capabilities around hydrogen in, in, in other countries in the Middle East where the water shortage is already, you know, quite acute. And that could also be the case in other regions where we're seeing, you know, a lot of activism around the water agenda, which could also impact, of course, how welcome the hydrogen production is going to be. And that's also a regulatory risk, because, of course, there are different regulations around the use of water in different countries. So in some parts of the U.S., for example, setting up a green hydrogen plant might not be as easy in, in due course because of those concerns over how water is used. And it may even differ from state to state. And in, in, in Europe, despite the sort of general harmonization of many of these laws, water regulation is still also quite diverse and, and, and could really impact both approval times for hydrogen projects or just make things quite complicated. So we've talked about regulatory risk, talked about geopolitical risk associated with hydrogen the ways that the development of hydrogen is going to affect supply chains, state relationships with each other, the status of different countries, how activists are going to view hydrogen. Is it safe? What about the safety of places where hydrogen is being created, stored and used? That's another really good question, Claudine. There are indeed a number of health and safety concerns. Hydrogen and ammonia are, on one hand, old technologies. You know, it's something that we've been producing for centuries in some cases or, or, or decades, and already an important part of, of agriculture for ammonia or, or hydrogen for, for other purposes, as we've, we've discussed. So it's, it's sort of being used, it's being transported and so on. But to use it the way that politicians and experts and the industry itself, of course, is, is envisioning Undoubtedly, we will see more accidents as we're scaling up these industries. Ammonia is highly toxic. Hydrogen is, is both corrosive and explosive. It's been one of the concerns that, that has previously had a big impact, for example, on the uh, supposed launch of, of hydrogen cars, which didn't really take off. We could see kind of negative community responses if you've got too many accidents or not complying with regulations around health and safety and, and so forth. So definitely something to consider. I think we're going to be revisiting this topic many times. It's clearly one that will merit very, very close monitoring as, as the different forms of hydrogen are exploited and developed by countries around the world. Thank you very much, everybody, for a fascinating discussion. Oksana, thank you. Thank you very much, Claudine. Joe, thank you for joining us. Thanks very much, Claudine. And Jakob, absolutely great to have you on the podcast. And I do hope you will join us again soon. Pleasure. Thanks. That's all for this episode of The Global Insight. Do have a read of our analysis on the outlook for hydrogen strategies and their implications 
on the Our Thinking section of the controlrisk.com website. Stay updated with new episodes of The Global Insight every other week by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. And be sure to check out our other podcasts as well. You can follow all our analysis and find out how we are helping businesses build organizations that are secure, compliant, and resilient. Visit www.controlrisks.com.